I invite you once again to turn with me in your copy of God's Word uh, to the New Testament book of Matthew. Uh, our text this morning is found on page 810 of the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 37. In our sermon series through Matthew's Gospel, we are going now, of course, through the Sermon on the Mount. In this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses six different teachings of the leaders of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And as he addresses each of those six, he comes in and he corrects, he restores what they had misinterpreted or misapplied out of the law of God. There are six of them. We're going through them in pairs. So last week we looked at the way we break the commandment not to murder with our anger, the way we break the commandment not to commit adultery with our lust. This morning we're taking verses, I'm sorry, uh, uh, the, the law portions, verses, uh, sections three and four, the topic of divorce and the topic of oaths. Uh, this is maybe a difficult text for some of you. Uh, divorce is a painful topic. I know it has hurt and affected uh, many of us. And so we will aim with humility and grace to try to hear uh, what Jesus says uh, about a hard topic. Uh, in, in a way, the two verses on divorce could be paired with the verses on lust from last week because they both are different ways in te- Jesus' teaching uh, of breaking the seventh commandment. Uh, instead, I'm taking divorce with oaths and looking at them through Uh, the lens of our commitments and our promises and our word and how we as the people of God are called uh, to honor the promises that we make because God honors the promises he makes to us. So would you follow along with me at Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, That everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me again? Lord, we need your help this morning. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to apply these words to our hearts. They seem fairly clear, and yet they can be very difficult and challenging in their application. Lord, give us a sense of humility and expectation as we sit under your word. And I pray if there are barriers or hardness in any of our hearts, that you would even now, this very moment, Soften us, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would 
Open our hearts to hear not only your law rightly preached in these texts, but, oh God, to hear the gospel and to rest in the mercy that comes to us from Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Sometimes a marketing slogan can say a lot more than just something about the product, can't it? One of the most famous famous marketing slogans of all time is, just do it. It's Nike, about maybe just getting out there and doing something athletic, but it really speaks to sort of a, a motto of life, right? Just take on the next challenge, just do it. Some of them aren't uh, quite so ambitious. You may remember uh, the Burger King marketing slogan, you can have it your way. They meant you could have your burger with or without onions, uh, but they're trying to say something more about life, right? You can sort of have life your way if you're the kind of person who lunches at Burger King. And then I think one of my favorite marketing slogans, see if you can remember the company, no rules, just right. It's it's Outback Steakhouse. (laughs) No rules, just right at Outback Steakhouse. What are the rules that are so dangerous at Outback Steakhouse? This marketing campaign was when they started going to unlimited shrimp with your steak. And so there's no rules now to how much shrimp you could eat. It was now unlimited, bottomless shrimp, and apparently that is just right for us. All of our problems would be solved if the rule of how much shrimp we could eat could just be lifted. That slogan applies to more than just a mindset about a restaurant, doesn't it? That slogan can apply to a mindset about life. No rules, just right. If I could live in a world without rules, man, my life would be a whole lot better. If mom and dad could just take away some of those oppressive rules, everything would be just right. If my boss would stop cramping my style with all those rules, everything would be just right. And here's the kicker. If my God would just take away some rules, everything would be just right. You see, we as rebellious creatures affected by the fall, we don't like rules. We don't like restrictions. They, they bind us. They oppress us. They come from without. They show us that, that we're not in charge. And sometimes the worst kind of restriction, the worst kind of rule is the one we put ourselves under. It's the promises that we make that we don't want to keep anymore. The commitments that we make, that we don't want to keep. Because if I could just get out of my own commitments, if I could just break free of that rule, my life would finally be right. Jesus has come to tell us about our own promises and our own commitments and our own rules that we keep. And as he does this, he shows us that he is a God who makes and keeps his promises. So I want to show you a simple truth this morning. The God who keeps his promises calls us to do the same. The God who keeps his promises, our God, calls us to do the same thing. We're going to look at that truth by looking at two different types of promises in our text this morning. First, we're going to see the marriage promises, verses 31 and 32. And then we're going to see... 
kind of general promises in verses uh, 33 to 37. Oaths or vows. We'll come to that in a moment. The first type of promise that God calls us to keep is the marriage promise. Verses 31 and 32. What's going on in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is confronting people who are changing, or in his words, relaxing the law of God. So he has come to fulfill the law of God, not to relax it. And in so doing, by his teaching, he restores God's law to its proper place. So what does God's word teach about marriage? Well, it teaches that God created marriage. Right? It didn't appear out of nowhere. God created it, and so therefore God sets the terms and the definition of marriage. God teaches us that marriage is a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman, between one husband and one wife. Marriage begins with some sort of exchanging of wedding vows. You know, last time you went to a wedding, I don't know if you thought you were witnessing a legal ceremony or if you're just there to see the the bride's dress, right? And to to hang out with some friends and, and just celebrate together. But at its heart, there's exchanging of vows, promises, commitments that may in time feel like they're restricting us, feel like they're binding us unnecessarily. And for the scribes and the Pharisees of the day, they found a lot of ways to get out of that commitment. In fact, they relaxed the law. I want want you to see how the the, the teachers of Jesus' day relaxed God's law. They said, in a sense, it is okay to break the marriage commitment. Look back at verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So he's quoting from scripture. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 24. But Jesus says not it was written. He says it was said because he is critiquing the teachers of his day, how they are interpreting and applying God's word. So real quick, what does Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 say? What well, says this? When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. And the verses go on. You can read them later to sort of describe what that relationship will look like. The scribes of Jesus' day looked at Deuteronomy 24 and they said, well, all you have to do is a husband write a certificate of divorce to his wife and he's free. You can send her away. There's, there's, there's really no need to, to make any more rules or any more restrictions about that, as long as he can write a certificate of divorce. Now, why would a husband write a wife a certificate of divorce? Well, Deuteronomy 24 says it only happens if he has found some indecency in her. That's actually a really hard word to interpret. What is, what is the indecency? Right, we can sort of think it's probably something pretty serious, probably along the lines of adultery. But along came some scholars and some scribes since that has been written, and they've interpreted that to mean all different things. A husband just sort of doesn't like his wife anymore. And there's actually one Hebrew commentary that says if she burns the food, that's an indecency. And he could send her away for a certificate of divorce. And people were interpreting that in all sorts of ways. Men, in order to get out of keeping their marriage vows. Now Jesus actually speaks even more pointedly about that text in Matthew chapter 19, which we'll get to in 
I don't know the rate we're going, probably next year uh, in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 19, verse 4, Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So we just read in Matthew 24. Why, why would Moses do that? Jesus answers, because of your hardness of heart. <laughs> Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So what is going on? The hardness of heart refers to the hardness of husbands who are abandoning their wives and leaving them in that day as an abandoned woman, essentially a helpless widow, right? In the culture of the day, uh, a wife left by her husband would not have really any options or any prospects. She would be entirely dependent upon the care and generosity of others. And so in order to protect women who were being left By their callous husbands, Moses said they should write a certificate of divorce so that the wife who's been abandoned by her husband is now free to go and remarry. The certificates of divorce were not to enable divorce for any sort of reason. They were to protect helpless women from the selfish behavior of their own husbands. Moses permits divorce. He does not command it here. He is not setting some standard that all husbands have to do is fill out a sheet of paper and they're, they're just, they're good to go, right? To get out of their obligations and, and do whatever they want. So Jesus confronts the relaxed law of the Pharisees. Remember what he does last week? He takes a law that's been relaxed and he restores it, right? He takes it back to its, its proper place. And the restored law Go back with me to Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 33. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus says it's not okay to break the marriage commitment. This verse in Deuteronomy 24 about a certificate, that doesn't enable you to do whatever you want. Jesus is clear here. Now, he, he puts this in the category of breaking the seventh commandment of adultery. Why is that? Well, I want you to see he is pairing together divorce and remarriage. Because again, in that day, a woman who has been divorced didn't have many other options but to get remarried. And if she is not divorced from her husband for a biblical reason... Uh, then for her to go and remarry would be for the other man to then be guilty of committing adultery. So Jesus is saying that the husband, by divorcing his wife, is, is actually forcing her into the sin of adultery. He is virtually sending her into the arms of another man. He is forcing her to remarry. Do you notice Who's guilty? Do you notice the pronouns of this verse? The guilty one 
is the husband that sends her away and the second husband who commits adultery. Now, Jesus gives a very significant exception to this. Uh, he sort of comes, helps us to define that word indecency all the way back in Deuteronomy 24. Uh, what is an exception to this? Or when is it allowable for those vows uh, to be broken? The short answer is once they've already been broken. Okay? Look what he says. Except on the ground of sexual immorality. Now, that word seems pretty clear to us, right, in the English. It's actually uh, debated by lots of scholars. What exactly does Jesus mean? Because that word is not equal to adultery. Adultery actually has sort of a narrower definition. Sexual morality is a little bit broader. It's not so broad as we saw last week in the sin of lust, which is adultery in the heart. Some people have sort of confused these two passages, and they've said, well, If a man lusts in his heart, then that is clearly grounds for divorce. But there are different different words here. The word here for sexual immorality means all kinds, really, of sins in that sexual category. Uh, They are all guilty of breaking the one flesh union that God has put together. So do you see here that the one who has been sinned against who has had the union broken with her husband by the sin of sexual morality, then the divorce simply recognizes the reality that's already occurred. Divorce just recognizes, in this case, that the union is already broken. That same logic is actually used in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to speak of a, uh, another grounds for divorce for the people of God. Uh, And that there is abandonment. If a spouse abandons or deserts you, then they have broken the bonds of marriage. Uh, Many people, myself included, believe that that includes the sin of abuse. That abuse in marriage is a form of abandoning a spouse and deserting a spouse. So Jesus both restores the seriousness of the law of God But he also shows his compassion and his mercy to recognize those who are affected deeply by the hurt of sexual immorality and allows that as a ground for divorce. The lesson here is that marriage promises are to be kept. That the Christian ethic as the people of God is to honor the sanctity of marriage. That we read in Hebrews chapter 13, let marriage be held in honor among all. But it's more than just us saying marriage is important. (laughs) It also requires of those of us who are married to act in ways that are faithful to the promises that we have made. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. This command does not merely say that a husband who is bound with his wife can do anything he wants as long as it doesn't cross that line into sexual immorality. No, this is telling us as people of God, as men of God, that as God keeps his promises to us, that Christ loves the church, we keep those promises to our wives. What does that look like? Well, the Old Testament book of Hosea paints a pretty powerful picture for us. Many of you know this story of Hosea, a prophet. 
who's sent to preach to God's people, but he's not only to preach to them, he is called by God to marry a woman. And that woman is unfaithful to him. He has all the grounds to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away, but God calls him to pursue her, to be faithful to her, to keep his promises made in marriage even to this rebellious wife who's running from him. And the reason for that is that Hosea's marriage is to be a picture of God's marriage to his people. That a faithful God who marries an unfaithful people in his covenant promises continues to pursue and to love and to shower his grace upon us. Marriage is intended to be a picture of of Christ and the gospel, that God who makes and keeps precious promises to us calls us to do the same. The first way we do this is by keeping our marriage promises. Getting married is probably one of the biggest promises you will make in life, but it's not the only one. And so in the next few verses, Jesus covers other types of promises in verses 33 to 37, he covers oaths. An oath, maybe we could just define it as a serious promise, a serious commitment. We usually don't think in our own lives of making oaths. If you've signed something, though, uh, you have made an oath of sorts. When you buy something online and they give you that endless screen of the terms and agreements, right? And you just scroll all the way through it as fast as you can and you click that box at the bottom and you say, I agree. That's sort of an oath, right? You don't realize that you're uh, making an oath when you do that. You're making some sort of commitment, some sort of promise. So what does God's law say of our oaths and promises? Well, we start with this. God is a God of truth. And as a God of truth... He speaks only the truth. He cannot lie. And he requires truth of his people. He requires that we are truthful. And he's keeping these oaths. At first glance, it may look like we're not supposed to lie, and so we're not supposed to break the the ninth commandment. Really, I think what Jesus is getting at is more rooted in the third commandment. And we'll see this in a little bit. That Jesus calls us as his people to not take the name of our God in vain, by making promises in his name and then breaking them. That is a way in which we break the third commandment. So look at verse 33. Jesus says now for the fourth time, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. So now he's quoting what the Pharisees have taught about Old Testament law. And for the first time, he doesn't quote an exact verse. He quotes kind of a bunch of verses kind of sandwiched together. You shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So the Pharisees are relaxing the law. How do they relax the law? We saw how they relax the marriage commitments. How are they relaxing these oaths and vows? Well, they're saying the same thing. It's okay to break your word. Why is that? Well, look what they say. Jesus says, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by the earth or by Jerusalem. He is rebuking them for things that they take their oath by. So the Pharisees were saying, I swear I'm going to do this. I'm not going to swear to God I'm going to do it, but I will swear to heaven, or I will swear to earth, or I will swear to Jerusalem. Sounds kind of holy, right? It's just a get-out-of-jail-free card. (laughs) 
Because by their logic, if they swear by something lower or something less important than God, then they're not bound to keep it. Then they can break their word. Remember when you were a kid, you were trying to really emphasize how true something was. No one believed you. And you'd say, I swear on my mother's life. Right? Maybe I said that before. Maybe you didn't. That's serious, right? That's a really, really serious promise. But if somebody said, are you sure? And you'd say, well, I I sort of swear on my second cousin once removed life. You wouldn't believe that person at all. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're lowering down. I'm not going to swear on God. I'll swear on heaven, earth, Jerusalem, even my own head. And then, you know, when I break it, I'm not really taking God's name in vain. I mean, it's just like, oh, my fingers were crossed. That's essentially what they're doing. They can do whatever they want. They are Here's the title of the sermon. They are creating loopholes in the law of God so that they can do whatever they want. So that they can break their own commandments. It's like they're writing in an escape clause to their very own promises so they don't have to keep them. That's how they relax the law of God. And Jesus comes and he says, I say to you, he is now going to restore God's law. The restored law says this, it's not okay to break your vows. It is not okay to break your commandments. It is not okay to break your oath. And he looks at them, it's as if he's laughing at them in verses 34. It's like he's saying, are you serious about your plan to swear to heaven? (laughs) You think that's going to keep you safe? Look, Look how he says it. Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. You're not safe by swearing on something unrelated to God. That's his throne. Oh, okay, then swear by earth. No, no, no. That's his footstool. Don't you mess with that. Oh, just swear by Jerusalem. It's just, a, it's just a city. No, it is the city of the great king. All of these things reflect God. And to make promises to them and break them is as if you're breaking a promise to God. And the fourth one. He says, don't swear by your own head. You don't even have the power to make your hair black or white. Some of you wish you had that power, right? (laughs) Jesus says, you don't have that power. So don't swear on it. Here's what it's like for the people of God. Our word is taking God's name, whether we use it or not. As the people of God, our promises are, Our word is in God's name. Why is that? Because you have already taken the name Christian. You already bear the name of Christ. And for you to lie, for you to make promises you don't intend to keep, for you to break your oaths is to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That is how holy God's law is. Now some would say, Let's just not swear on anything. We can be safe, right? If we just never swear, if we never make promises, we can never break our promises. There's actually whole subsets of Christian denominations because of this verse, they will never take an oath. What do we think of that? Well, we could turn to our Westminster Confession of Faith, the theology of our, of our denomination, and we see there there's an entire chapter on oaths and vows. It's more than you ever wanted to know about oaths and vows. Just a couple notes from there. Number one is that we should swear oaths. Jesus swore oaths as he is going to be tried. Paul swore oaths as he was on trial. 
we should swear oaths in matters of, quote, weight and moment. Significant matters, significant stages, significant events, right? We should not swear to God when we're playing with our kids in the backyard, right, on the playground, right? We shouldn't just make oaths in casual conversation, but there are moments when it is appropriate or even required. Now, the confession goes on to say, we swear only to God. Don't mess around with other people and other objects. If you're going to swear, it is only to God, and it is with, quote, holy fear and reverence. That means you better plan to keep it. (laughs) But then finally, a point about oaths is that they cannot force you to sin. Right? If you make an oath... And the only possible way for you to keep that oath is for you to commit a sin, then you are no longer bound by it. The confession is clear on that. Oaths cannot oblige us to sin. So in a particular sense, we're talking about the seriousness of our vows. But if we back up a minute, the application from these verses is, as we bear the name of God in our adoption as his sons and daughters, we are a people that speak truthfully. And we are a people who honor our commitments. That is what the law of God requires of us. And what did we see last week? Once we had restored the law of God to its proper place and we compare our lives to the holy law, what does it say? Guilty. The aim of the Pharisees is to lower the law that they can keep it. The aim of Jesus is to restore the law so that you can never keep it. And he drives you to go to the foot of the cross. The law is so holy And you are so incapable of keeping it, you have no hope but to turn and rest in Jesus who has come to fulfill the law, who has come as the perfect law keeper on our behalf. So one way we apply these verses is to recognize we can't keep them and Jesus does and we believe in him. But that same gospel of grace that redeems us, it also is in the process of transforming us. So I want to show you a couple ways as we close about how these laws guide us in how we live. All right? They show us our guilt, but they also guide us in how we live. Three quick applications and we are done. Number one, reject the world's promises. If you are to believe and keep the promises of God, you must reject the world's promises. What is the promise of the world? Well, it's the, the promise of Outback Steakhouse. No rules just right. That's what the world promises. You see, when we relax these laws, not only can we keep them, but we can now do whatever we want and still sort of look religious, right? I mean, it's the Pharisees themselves who are breaking these laws. See, when we are, tempt- when we are tempted to break our commitments, are we not really being tempted towards idolatry? Isn't it really our self and our desires and what we want to be right in our lives? Isn't that what we want to worship? And we are willing to break our own word and vows in order to get what we worship? Our own satisfaction, our own happiness. I wonder if you're here this morning and you are already in your hearts casting off God himself in order to find happiness. That you have become convinced if you could just get out of the thumb of these commandments, if you could just get out of mom and dad's house, if you could just get out of religion that 
holds God's law to be so holy, you will finally be happy. Here's the thing. You can't escape the law of God. Jesus clarifies it here, but if we didn't have this, it's still written on your heart. It's written on the heart of every one of us. You will never outrun it. Your conscience will ever bear witness against you of your own guilt in breaking the law of God. There is no happiness in the promises of the world. There is no just right on the other side of no rules. If you're there, if you're tempted there in your heart, I call you to return, to come back to the graciousness of your heavenly father this morning. Not to come back and embrace a bunch of rules, but to come back and repent of your rule breaking and embrace Jesus, the one who has bled and died for your sin. These commandments guide us to reject the world's promises. Secondly, they guide us to keep our own promises. That seems sort of obvious, doesn't it? They guide us to keep our own promise. The big promise here are our marriage vows. Jesus gives clear instruction uh, on that. He gives clear instruction on uh, what the exceptions look like in his word. There are other promises we make, though. Another promise we make as God's people is a, a baptism vow. Just a few weeks ago, standing here, we had a, a baptism, and we asked the parents to take three vows before us. They vowed to bring their child up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you are a parent, you have taken that vow as you have brought your children to baptism. Are you keeping that vow? It's very serious the day that you make it. It's not so serious a couple months later. It's not so serious a couple years later. Do you remember the vows, parents, that you made before this church at the baptism or a church like it of your children? Are you aiming to keep those vows, to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Congregation, when someone's baptized here, you make vows to help those parents. I'm a parent with four kids, and I need your help. (laughs) There are other parents at this church. And we need your help. You have vowed it to help the parents raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. What other vows have you made? If you're a church officer, then you have made vows. If you're a deacon or an elder, ruling elder or teaching elder, as we call pastors in our denomination, you have made vows. You have vowed to shepherd the congregation. You have vowed to serve this church. You have made a vow to set an example before the flock that we might follow you. The final vow, if you're a member of this church, you have made membership vows. You stood before this congregation and you have made vows. You have promised to support the church in its worship and work. That might have felt easy when you made that promise. I know there's been a time in the last two years where you've thought, I don't want to keep that promise anymore. It's really hard to support the church in its worship and work. What's even harder is the next vow to submit to the government of the church. The oversight of those who have vowed to shepherd and serve you. And a final membership vow, you have vowed to study the peace and the purity of the church. You have vowed to strive for the peace and the purity of this very church. Are you still aiming to keep that promise. 
You see, God calls us to reject the world's promises. He calls us to keep our own promises. And finally, he calls us to believe his promises. We're going to close with this. God calls us to believe his promises. Let me put it bluntly. Why do you break your promise? It's because you don't trust God with your future. It's because you think if you break your promise, your future will be better than if you keep it. Which means you don't trust God. The sovereignty and the goodness of God. The the day you made those promises, the day you made those vows, he knew. He knew what the next 50 years of your life would be like. And he loves you. And he is gracious to you. And he is merciful to you. You all know the promise of Romans 8.28. I want you to hear it again. But I want you to hear it as one who is tempted to break your oath. Hear this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his promises. Believe the promises of God. You see, Paul goes on to say in verse 32, that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Why does God not spare his own son? Because he made a promise. Because he made a promise in the Garden of Eden. He made a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Even... If that servant and that seed was his own son. As we struggle to keep our own promises, we rest today knowing that God always keeps his. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, we are a restless and rebellious people. We have a hard time even keeping the small promises we have made. And Lord, I know that there are some who wrestle with the deepest and the biggest promises that they have made in life. Lord, I pray that you would give us each the gift of faith in you. That you would give a resolve in our own hearts. That we would honor you as our God by believing the promises that you have made. That you are for us. That all things will work together for our good, even if we cannot see through the clouds how that will happen. Oh God, we thank you and rejoice in your precious promises to us and ask for another measure of faith this day to believe them and to trust in your son in whose name we pray. Amen.